0: And welcome to our very important live stream today. This is Mintcast for Mint Press News. I am your host, Manar Mohawash Adli. This is an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. Um, to, have, to help us continue these interviews, we invite you to become a member on our Patreon page, which we will link in the video below. So We're obviously live right now. We are live on YouTube. We're live on Facebook. We're live on Twitter and on Twitch. And We would really appreciate if you could help us beat social media uh, censorship algorithms and shadow banning by sharing this live stream wherever you can. We're going to be having a very, very important discussion today um, about Afghanistan (laughs) with the United States pullout. The government they established has collapsed there with the Taliban marching in to fill in the void leaving a situation reminiscent of what the country was like 20 years ago before the war on terror uh, began. So the new reality of Afghanistan is leaving many wondering just what the last two decades of war were for. And our guest today is Lawrence Wilkerson. Uh, He's a former Bush aide and a retired army colonel who served as secretary of state uh, under uh, Colin Powell's chief of staff from 2002 to 2005. Since leaving office, he has become a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy, of endless wars that serves the military-industrial complex. I'm just going to add uh, Colonel here. Thank you so much, Colonel, for joining us today. Good to be with you. Uh, First, I'd like to start by asking you to give us your reaction to what has happened in Afghanistan Afghanistan over the last uh, few weeks. Are you surprised but? By like what has happened there
1: I'm not at all surprised by the culmination of events of over twenty years of vastly wasted sums of money, blood, treasure, both Afghan, Pakistani, and others as well as u s and its allies. I'm not that surprised by the incompetence of the end either because I saw the government up close and personal for really. 12 to 15 years at the highest levels of power management, to include, of course, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and ultimately the White House. I was in the White House, by the way, in November 2015, to be thanked by John Kerry, then Secretary of State, and President Obama, face-to-face in the Roosevelt Room, along with a couple of other people, um, for our work on the Iran nuclear agreement, which had squeaked by at that time. And President Obama opened his remarks to us by saying, and I quote, there's a bias in this town toward war, unquote. And as a professor who's taught that for some 16 years in two different universities and for four or five years in the nation's premier war colleges, I almost fell off my chair to hear an American president admit that Washington, the empire, the American empire, has a penchant, indeed a bias for war. That's part of the problem with regard to Syria, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, you name it. And Afghanistan, of course, the latest result. Right before we came on the air, I reminded you of Carl von Klosteritz's comment about beware the vividness of transient events. Powell used to say that to me all the time. He'd look at me and he'd say, LW, these are transient events. Don't be mesmerized by them like the press will be and others will be because there are far more significant things happening in the world. And in that vein, With no, I take my hat off to the people who are worried about the humanitarian issues and so forth. They're right. They're right to be worried, and they're right to, for example, just south of me in Fort Lee, Virginia, we're taking on Afghan refugees as they come in, thousands of them. Um, They're right to do that. But the strategic landscape, to me, is horrible, because the empire has forgotten what it's all about to run confidently its empire. And we should not be leaving Afghanistan in the sense of strategic interests, because there are significant strategic interests, and they surround our presence in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. and would surround our presence anywhere in Central Asia. There are Pakistan's nuclear weapons, potentially the most unstable nuclear stockpile in the world. They are the Chinese interest in that region, its most formidable base road initiative, penetrates that region significantly. And while I'm not against that, I'm not exactly going to stand back and watch it happen without wondering if it's uh, safe for the people who are participating in it. And then thirdly, um, everyone's talking about a war with China. Well, if you're contemplating a war with China, which I'm not, I hope to heck it never happens. Um, I think the United States would lose. Um, but if you are contemplating a war with China, why would you abandon the only position you have on its westernmost flank? The only position you have. So the strategist in me, the military strategist in me, me says, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? Stayed in Germany for half a century plus. Stayed in Japan for half a century plus. Stayed in Korea after 53 and the end of the war there for half a century plus. Still there, of course. Um, So the humanitarian part of me says, good. Good that this is over. You're ending it incompetently, but good that it's over. Uh, The strategist in me, and I can't get away from it, I was trained as a military strategist, says, bad mistake.
0: So I think those are two contradicting answers. And I think a lot of people listening to this are wondering, what is the best route out of Afghanistan? How would the United States um, form peace in the region?
1: I don't think you can bring about peace in a region from the Red Sea, the new cockpit of strategic competition, to be sure, far more important than the Persian Gulf now, to Lebanon and on up to Afghanistan and across to Pakistan, Uzbekistan, that portion of India, which Pakistan threatens, which climate change threatens majorly because the Himalayan glaciers are melting. And we've already seen confrontation over the water that's left in Pakistan and Western India. We're going to see more of that. So I I think we have done our level best or worst, if you prefer, to destabilize the Levant and to destabilize all that region. Um, And now we're paying the consequences. Europe's going to pay the consequences big time, as it did with Syria, because Afghan refugees are now going to flood into Mm -hmm. Europe the same way Syrian refugees and Libyan refugees did before all as a result of U.S. errors, strategic eras. Um, so I don't know how to fix that. You certainly don't fix it with military power, though. And that's the only power that the United States seem to be able to use. So in that respect, that Biden is backing away from that, and I hope turning to diplomacy, economic and financial power, cultural power, informational power, and so forth, rather than the military, is a good sign but I'm not really, really optimistic in that regard because I have not seen from Blinken and Sullivan and others in this administration the kind of intellectual skill, the kind of strategic skills necessary to do that. Let me give you an example. Foreign Minister Wang Yi, State Councilor Wang Yi, I've known him since Richard Haas and I met with him in Beijing in 2001 and held policy planning talks with him and his deputy, Shui Kai, who was later ambassador to the United States waiting to see where they put Shui now. He's sort of just waiting around right now. Sergey Lavrov, whom I met with Colin Powell, very close, intimately, and one of the best diplomats in the world. Sergei doesn't care who's running Russia, doesn't care if it's Vladimir Putin or Roy Medvedev or whomever. Um, what's happening is Sergei is, is, is working for the motherland, for Mother Russia. And he is a brilliant diplomat. So Wang Yi and Sergei have been running circles around Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken. And for that matter, The rest of the Western world for weeks now, if not months. And that disturbs me because what we're seeing, for example, is Iran becoming a member of the SCO, the Security Corporation Organization, already in the, uh, uh, shall we say, the near abroad of China and Russia, already ready to do things with them. Um, That's the most powerful country in that region. It's the most homogeneous country in that region. I don't care if they have a theocracy in charge of them. Israel has a theocracy Mm -hmm. in charge of them. And I'm more frightened of the theocracy in Jerusalem than I am the theocracy in Tehran. So we have really left a mess in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, And I don't know how we're going to clean it up. I'm not a miracle worker. I do not have, I have tactical suggestions But I don't have strategic suggestions other than don't use the military instrument because it doesn't work. And the last 25 years or so, indeed, the last 60 years, should have proven that to the empire.
0: And, you know, you've referenced uh, the United States military as a U.S. empire. Um, You know, U.S. documents show that Washington has been for some time planning to shift its focus from the Middle East um, to confront Russia and China as you just mentioned. Is the Afghanistan withdrawal a point of reference in this? And are you concerned over high intentions with these two nuclear states? I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, the instability in Pakistan, but how does this work with China and Russia?
1: Yes, yes, and yes to your specific (laughs) questions. (laughs) This is not a smart move, as I indicated before, with regard to either of these conflicts. If it is a move that signals shifting power, military power, hard power, as well as other power, to a China-Russia focus, that's another matter. But it's hard for me to see that, very hard for me to see that, because the real focus with China, the dangerous focus with China is twofold, the South China Sea and the overweening claims that China has made there, and Taiwan, even a far more difficult problem. Um, China is the hegemon in that area now. We are not. We've lost that. We're done. We're toast. Put a fork in us. We're over in terms of that region. China is the dominant power. Um, The Japanese have recognized this. That's the reason you see the Japanese getting a little more concerned about freedom of navigation operations, about the South China Sea, and so forth. if you wanted to really, really get Beijing's attention, if you thought war was imminent and you wanted to get their attention, you would back off Japan. You would turn Japan loose. You would say to Japan, um, nuclear umbrella is no longer a guarantee for you. You're on your own. We're still your friend and ally. We always will be. But you're on your own now in terms of security. The U.S. nuclear umbrella no longer extends to Tokyo. Watch the Chinese gets concerned then because then they got to look in two very distinct directions at the same time. And Japan has the capacity, and this is not a positive in my mind, but it's a reality, to be a full-up nuclear power in 18 months. They have one of the most sophisticated nuclear industries on the face of the earth. Um, So we're not playing this game very smartly. With regard to Europe and Russia, we're not playing it very smartly. I had a cold call from a Norwegian member of parliament recently who asked me, Cold call, I pick up the phone and he identifies himself and I Google him real quick and I see he's what he says he is. And he says, um, I I would like your opinion on whether or not the United States will honor Article 5 of the NATO treaty if the Russians show up in Norway. I said Article 5 is an attack on one, is an attack on all. It commits us to nuclear war, if necessary, with Moscow. I thought for a moment, not long, and I said, because I've been asked this question before, no. No one in America is willing to die for Oslo. No one in America is willing to die for Tbilisi or for Montenegro or whatever. So this is absurd what we've done, extend Article 5 to all these new NATO countries. What we're doing is killing NATO. We're destroying it. Um, I don't know how you get around that. And, of course, the Norwegian Member of Parliament said, well, look, we've been doing all these things. We've been going to Libya. Uh, We led the Libya bombing uh, uh, raids. And I said, are you kidding me? I didn't know that. I did not know that. he said, yes, our jet pilots led the bombing raids in Libya. Well, why do you think you did that? Well, we did that because we wanted to guarantee your loyalty in fulfilling the NATO commitment. I said, well, that was a bad bargain. That was truly a bad bargain. Uh, I didn't know anything else to tell him. I was going to be honest and straightforward and candid with him, and I I, I told him, I said, no American is going to bless its president. Now, that doesn't mean the president isn't going to do it, but no American, no citizen, I don't think, of sane and sober mind is going to bless using nuclear weapons with Russia and suffering the response from Russia or China in order to fulfill Article 5 of NATO's treaty." So this is an absurd thing we've done, extending all these commitments without the American people really understanding what we're doing.
0: Well, and it seems like you're really driving the point that, you know, the images that we're seeing out of Afghanistan are really not what the story is about. It's more about this geopolitical positioning of the United States and this nuclear arms race. Is that, am I understanding that correctly?
1: You're right. And that's what I mean by where the vividness of tragedy. is. I mean, my heart goes out to the people down at Fort Lee who are coming off the airplanes. My heart goes out to all those people we've seen in the tragic scenes from Kabul and the surrounding area. My heart goes out to all the people who work for us tirelessly for 20 some odd years. Some of them that length of time, many of them for 10 or 11, and who now can't get SRVs, can't get visas into the United States because of delinquency and incompetence of the U.S. Department of State. And because there are so many Republicans in particular, but a few Democrats too in the Congress, who say, oh no, you'll let terrorists in, you'll let terrorists in. Well, as one of my Marine friends said to me, I told them, I can certify this guy's been working for us for 12 years, 12 years and he's never turned on us. He's been in life threatening situations, he's been wounded and you won't give him a visa? No. He might be a terrorist. We've got to vet him. We've got to deep background check him. Oh, come on. This is the kind of stupidity we've been up against. But that said, these are transient events. Meanwhile, the world is shifting in ways that are very inimical to U.S. interests and to Western international, what, what I would call Western liberal democracies, international interests. Um, Brexit, same thing. Brexit was a blow a blow to all that we've built, we being all the Western allies and Japan over the past uh, 70 years. Um, Brexit was a shot in the chest, if you will. You know, what do you mean you're leaving Europe? This is crazy. This is antithetical to everything we've tried to do over the past half century plus, And yet it happened. So it's falling apart, even as we look at it.
0: And do you see this as the U.S. losing its standing in the world?
1: I do see that to a certain extent. And when I say the U.S., I mean the empire. Yeah. I always try to separate America as created by the founders, most of them anyway, from the empire, because while Washington and Jefferson and others spoke of empire, they spoke of an empire of freedom, an empire of enlightenment, an empire of human dignity and respect for human rights. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an empire of aggrandizement aggression, imperial wars from one end of the planet to the other. My God, we're flying drones in nine countries with whom we aren't at war and some of whom we're killing people. Um, This is not what Jefferson and Washington and Franklin envisioned. So I, I carefully delineate between the empire that we've built since World War II and the republic we had before that. Uh, It always had a tendency. Look at the war with Mexico, for example. As Ulysses Grant said, um, in his view, it was a a horrible war. It was a war of aggrandizement. It was a war for territory. That's all it was. And worse, probably, and Grant knew this, it was a war to uh, keep slavery going because we needed Texas in order to appease the slaveholders in the South. Uh, And that really was what the war was all about. And Grant saw the Civil War coming sometime in the future because of that war. He was right. Uh, So it's not like we haven't had this tendency in our midst before, but we've never put it out as the forefront of our policy in the world until post-World War II, and particularly Reagan forward.
0: And, you know, you obviously have spoken a lot about the concept of U.S. empire, which is very much driven by the military-industrial complex. Um, We've seen Lockheed Martin stocks get a return of nearly 2,000% since the war on terror began, um, and it was announced under the Bush administration. Four Lockheed Martin executives advised former President George Bush on the wars in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. How are these weapons manufacturers driving policy in the Biden administration today?
1: Massively so since about 1980, they have been doing exactly what you said, increasing their power almost every month. Um, I don't know enough about Biden's interior policies to say that he's, as president, continuing that. I suspect he is because it's almost impossible to not do so. It's become so entrenched. But I can say categorically that Biden as a senator helped it majorly. (laughs) No, he, he's not—he's not innocent as president. If you look at his senatorial career, um, one of the, one of the friends of the military industrial complex, as are so many congressmen who get their coffers filled, their political bank account, if you will, filled by Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, and others. Um, but one of the things Afghanistan has been that no one really, other than people like you and and me and and Danny Surgeon and Eric Edstrom and others of that ilk has been saying is that this is a cash cow. Afghanistan was a cash cow for military contractors, for military companies, all throughout the past 20 years. They made fortunes, as you just pointed out, with regard to Lockheed. Let me point out something else with regard to Lockheed. A former CEO of Lockheed came in to give us some advice when I was working for Colin Powell when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 1989 to 1993. We were downsizing the military by about 25% and a commensurate amount of the defense industrial base, the military industrial complex. He said to us, you know what you're going to get if you do this? You're going to get about six or seven big contractors at the end of your process and they're going to collude and they're going to form monopolies and they're going to build shitty products. Pardon my French. They're going to charge you a maximum amount of money for those products and they aren't gonna give a rat's rear end for you. That's exactly what's happening. So you get Lockheed has Raytheon as a sub, then Raytheon is the prime and has Lockheed as a sub. And they build things like the f 35, which the last time I checked had a fully mission capable weight that made it something like, as the chief of staff of the Air Force himself said, a Ferrari, you'd only take it out and drive it on Sundays. Uh, hope our enemies feel that way too. This is an aircraft. It's a disaster. And Lockheed made it. And there's so many other things Lockheed has made that are disasters. What they do is they monopolize the industry. They build really bad products and they charge a maximum price for it. And I'm, so, I'm sad to say that most of the military leadership goes along with them because as soon as that leadership walks out the door of the Pentagon, they've got a six or a seven figure salary working for or on the advisory board or both of one of those defense contractors. It's, it's a real thing we've set up here to destroy the empire, and it's eating away at the empire every day.
0: And are there more people like you within government today that are speaking out against this military-industrial complex and endless war, and do you think that they are effective?
1: There are some. They usually wind up being, quote, whistleblowers, unquote, although today our whistleblower protection is so bad yeah. that most of them wind up going to jail. Um, I said to someone the other day, uh, someone who wants I, I remember um, uh, this young man, Hale, who was tried in the court in Alexandria for letting secrets go about the drone program. And my son's a drone pilot for the United States Air Force, actually for the Tennessee Air National Guard. But he's brought to active duty a lot of times, especially when he has to use the drone in a way that's, uh, shall we say, offensive uh, in both senses of that term. Um, and, and so this guy, Hale, goes before the judge in Alexandria and he gets convicted. I think he was given four years. Um, and he says his only defense is that he wanted to stop the killing of innocent civilians. He's right. And the judge, the judge showing his ignorance, says, well, you know, you should have gone to your boss. You should have gone to the inspector general. You shouldn't have gone public with those papers. I said two things would have happened if he'd gone public. One, nothing would have happened with regard to his complaint. I mean, if he hadn't gone public, nothing would have happened with regard to his complaint. And two, he'd have been punished. If you read Tom Mueller's book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, um, should have been read by every American then you'd understand what I'm talking about with regard to big pharma, big food, big oil, big military, all of them. We punish whistleblowers. We don't reward them. Right. Only occasionally do we reward them, and that's because they get us over the barrel, and uh, like Bradley Birkenhead, <laughs> and take $75 million away as the payment from the IRS for having given evidence that saved the IRS billions of dollars could have saved them a lot more had they gone over after all the people Bradley revealed. People like maybe a former president and his wife and others who were involved in this scam of hiding their money overseas and not paying taxes in, in the United States. It's become de rigueur to do that. If you're a billionaire, you don't pay much tax.
0: So y- you mentioned that The United States right now through the State Department and its immigration policy is basically refusing to take in refugees um, because of, you know, suspecting people as being terrorists. Yet the United States is actively destroying entire countries like we did in Libya, in Syria, and Afghanistan. Afghanistan specifically, um, you know, we created a refugee crisis of over 37 million people. And a lot of those people, have flooded countries like Iran. Do you think part of destroying these countries and creating these refugee crises is also a tactic of destabilizing neighboring countries like Iran economically? Because how can countries that are already struggling under US sanctions like Iran really take care of millions of refugees when they're already struggling to take care of their own population?
1: That's an excellent question, and, and I'll answer it by saying I'm quite confident I've seen the plans that neoconservatives from 2001 to 2005 was I was in gov- when I was in government. I mean, people like Richard Perle on the outside, Bill Kristol on the outside, and on the inside, Paul Wolfowitz and Douglas yeah. Feith and a host of others thought that if they put Persian against Persian, Arab against Arab, Persian against Arab, and vice versa— that they would so royal the Levant that Israel would be safe. That was part of their strategy, was to put it in flames, but let the flames not touch Israel. Let Israel sit there as a bastion of democracy and freedom and liberty and economic success while all these Arabs and Persians were killing each other. How's that worked out? I'd want to ask Jerusalem right now. because I'd want to ask Bibi Netanyahu in particular because Bibi helped design this strategy. I think they've jeopardized Israel's future. in fact, I said the other day, I said publicly, I'm not sure Israel will be here in 25 years. Um, If it is here, it'll be an apartheid state. It won't be a democracy. It will be overwhelmingly authoritarian. It'll be a theocracy in that authoritarianism. And I, I don't feel very confident of Israel's future. So that's what we've done. Rather than protect Israel, we made Israel's future in jeopardy. And that, But that was their plan, was to destabilize the whole region. I'm not so sure there weren't a lot of what what Michael Lofgren and others have called the deep state. And the deep state includes the CEO of Lucky Martin, mm. <laughs> the CEO of Raytheon, and so forth. Um, big food, big pharma, all these Monsanto, all these people who rape, pillage, and plunder the world from time to time. It includes them, and I'm not so sure they weren't complicit in this, at least not objecting, if not funding some of the things that were done. Because I'm convinced after the Fed meeting in Jackson Hole, this most recent meeting, where they decided to buy BlackRock's plan, going direct is what BlackRock called it. Well, going direct means cutting out the middle. Think about that for a minute. Now, they're really talking about banks and bankers and such, but What does cutting out the middle really mean in today's atmosphere, in today's jargon? It means getting rid of people like you and me. It means getting rid of the middle class, and certainly it means getting rid of the lower classes, Um, replacing them with robotics, with artificial intelligence, and so forth. Uh, People say, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. Conspiracy (laughs) theorists? Come on, man. Look around you at what is happening. One of the things that's going to come out of this going direct BlackRock plan decided by the Fed in Jackson Hole is no more cash. Think about that for a minute. For people who don't, you know, these people have no clue. Go to Missouri. Go to half the districts in Missouri and you'll find people who don't even have Internet access, let alone own a credit card, let alone want to own a credit card. So what are you going to do to all these people when you say no more cash? not accepted. You must have a piece of plastic and it must be our piece of plastic, or you must have a few Bitcoin, or you must have this digital equivalent of what used to be currency and cash. Um, This is a a very blatant attempt to get rid of some of us. And what better way to get rid of some of us than to have endless wars?
0: Well, I think you just described uh, our heading into the (laughs) techno-tyranny state that we've talked about. (laughs) um yeah. and moving moving along into the cashless society is something that we've actually talked about at Mint press um especially uh during this covid pandemic i mean this is um you know this is a, a time when the techno technocrats uh, are using the pandemic as an excuse to push these kinds of um policies
1: um it was it was actually was actually thought of if you if you read yeah. The the, the 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 archives the reports it was actually thought of by the fed it was thought of in terms of because before they knew anything about the pandemic it was thought of in terms of we need another 9 eleven type event yeah we need another yeah. deep crisis
0: right 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 <laughs> whoa right,
1: right. and it came out alone. <laughs>
0: Absolutely no. there's no question that that's where we're headed now. And I just want to go back to Afghanistan because it's it's on it's in the hearts and minds of people right now, especially with all of these images coming out and you're right, the mainstream corporate media is uh, romanticizing the war in Afghanistan by showing what I like to call like war porn you know with the yeah. images of, of the, Great of the term. you know the military personnel holding the babies. I mean they're really just romanticizing uh, the military, Uh, Yet for the last 20 years, we've had barely any coverage about what has truly been taking place in Afghanistan, the longest lasting, most expensive uh, war in the U.S. history. And so um, I want to go back to Afghanistan to talk about. Let
1: me me just make one comment there. I I, I take your comments personally, Um, not, not negatively, but. Because of the discussion my wife and I had this morning, when she was going on after watching CNN and one other cable news network, I said, "Where were all these people when the Israelis were killing all those babies and little children in Gaza?"
0: Exactly. Yeah, there has obviously been no coverage of Israel's massacre uh, in Gaza. Uh, you know, just a couple of months ago, there was yeah, there don't, was nothing.
1: Don't get concerned about that because that shouldn't concern you. <laughs>
0: Exactly, exactly. But regarding, uh, you know, reading reports like the Afghanistan Papers, for example, and the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, it seems clear that those at the top knew for years the outcome was virtually inevitable. Why then do you think that this campaign continued on for so long?
1: I think primarily because it was what I call a cash cow. And I don't mean just for the complex, for the Lockheeds and others. I mean, for the generals, too. Um, let's face it. We had generals who went to Afghanistan, failed spectacularly, came right out and became chief of service. Left the Pentagon after being chief of service and went out to be advisor to Raytheon on the board, where they got 600000 a year for doing nothing but sitting in two board meetings every year. Um, so it was. It was very profitable. Whether you're winning or losing doesn't really matter. In fact, you almost want to be losing. Losing at least a little bit so that you can continue to demand troops, to demand money, to demand a military budget and so forth. You have to do that in order to keep the, the, the cow alive. And that's how, that's what Afghanistan became. It became a, a, a uh, really, as Lincoln said, Lincoln's expression was there's there's too many pigs for the teat. Well, he was talking about patronage. I'm talking about war there there's so many pigs out there that you got to feed and you got to pay that you need a lot of war. And by god for the last 20 years we've given the world a lot of war.
0: Absolutely. And speaking of war, um we're just going to take a couple of questions from the, our viewers since we have uh, a big audience right now watching us live. Um we want to talk about uh let's see here, accountability, okay? Uh we've had in the past uh Mike Pompeo, John Bolton literally threatened to invade the Hague, to invade the Netherlands if um, war criminals are gonna be held accountable. And so where do you see accountability when it comes to these war crimes? Where, I mean, I've seen reports about Afghanistan death tolls as low as 500,000 to upwards to over 2 million people have died.
1: It won't go anywhere. Read Eric Edstrom's book. Um uh, Eric was a West Point graduate, an old guard commander, the most prestigious unit in the army. And Eric has written a book that's just excoriating with regard to the civilian casualties and so forth in Afghanistan. Needless civilian casualties, mind you. Um, but if you come back up to the up, up to the level of the power management in this country, though, and you start talking about things like that. Look at what we've been trying to do, we being the North Carolina Commission of Inquiry on Torture. The CIA ran two of its, uh, well, one really big air operation through North Carolina, which gave us the right to do this. Um, And we can't even get Mark Warner, Mark Warner, the senator from my state of Virginia and a Democrat, to listen to us about releasing the torture report, the 6,000 pages that would send some people to jail, probably. I don't think they'd be able to avoid accountability because it's so graphic and so detailed. That's why they won't release it. That's why Richard Burr, that wonderful person from North Carolina, who was chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence at the time, restricted it and wouldn't let it go out. But now we've got Democrats in charge and they won't let it go out. So accountability in this empire, not Mm going to happen.
0: Uh, We have another question from our audience asking, is this the end of liberal interventionism?
1: I hope so. But I said that after (laughs) Vietnam. I said that midway through Iraq. I said that as Obama launched Libya. I said said that as we contemplated Syria. I was so happy Mm -hmm. that Obama didn't let that red line business get him to put major forces in Syria. But still, we still Mm -hmm. had forces in Syria, still do to this day, illegally, illegally. In Syria, nobody asked us to go there. Bashar al-Assad didn't ask us. Uh, it, it's insane. Uh, yeah, I, that question is a good question too.
0: Um, let's see here. Why? Uh, let's see here. Uh, does Biden Pentagon supporting withdrawal while establishment media politicians attack show the contradiction in U.S. empire? Does the Pentagon see the limits while one you while weapons manufacturers don't?
1: That's a difficult question to answer because I think the liaison, as it were, between the Pentagon and the defense contractors is so tight now that it's difficult to distinguish between them. But there are still some people in the higher ranks of the military who realize what's happening. And while they want to protect the country, as is their charge and their mission, from such threats as China and Russia— and maybe even believe that those are genuine threats if postured in one way or the other that might be more threatening, um, particularly China, they still don't know how to break away from what we've created. They don't know how to get out of this miasma that we've created, which sucks at them every day, pulling their boots down, their their feet down and everything else. Yeah. Even if you care, even if you want to change things, when you start trying to, you wind up creating enough enemies that you don't survive.
0: Uh, One last question for you, Colonel, um, about the Taliban. The Taliban that we're seeing within the media today is talking about women's rights and escalating tensions. Yet the media is showing them through this light that they are uh, backwards and radical. I don't know what the truth is. What is your perspective on the Taliban today? Is this the same group that Uh, you know, ruled, I guess, in the last, is this the same group of Taliban with the same ideologies as 20 years ago? Or is this, are we seeing a new Taliban rule Afghanistan and where are they headed?
1: The only thing I have to base any real assessment on, and still it's sort of scientific wild ass guessing, as we used to say in the military, is the talks with uh, Khalilzad, Zal Khalilzad. Um, Well, I I, I don't hold out any respect much for Zal uh, because I think he, speaking Urdu and Pashto both in the talks with the Taliban and often being the only one who did other than the Taliban, I'm not sure anyone really knows what Zal negotiated. Um, And that was Zal's purpose, I'm sure. But even with that, I think we probably are seeing a Taliban leadership, not necessarily rank and file. But the leadership's got to exercise some kind of control over them, or it won't be a a success for the Taliban, ultimately. Um, But I think we're seeing a leadership that realizes a few things. It's just concluded a deal with Iran, for example. I understand Zarif, Javad Zarif was involved a little, but then we got the new foreign minister, and he continued the policy. So apparently, Tehran has resolved its living with the Taliban and is going to give them help and assistance. China, of course, Russia, Uzbekistan, Pakistan. Pakistan is the Beit law in all of this. Pakistan Pakistan is the godfather of the Taliban, and they're Mm -hmm. not about to let them go away so long as they're keeping Afghanistan in Pakistan's camp gives them strategic depth against their main enemy, India. But the Taliban in all of that miasma seem to be different in, in many fundamental ways, leadership at least. Having awakened to the fact that they can't survive, they can't attract investment and so forth unless they get along with some of these contiguous powers and ultimately get along with say the United States, China and Russia. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful in that regard. I'll, I'll wait to see how the rank and file act over time and how much the leadership is able to control that rank and file. And ameliorate the overall position of the Taliban before I make a final decision. But I'm a little bit encouraged by some of the things they have not done.
0: Okay, well, that's uh, somewhat hopeful, I guess you could say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't
1: know any other way to be these days. <laughs> there's not there's not a whole lot the empire is doing that would get my you know my hopes up.
0: Well, you've seen and worked within the U.S. military and government for so long. you've probably seen it all so nothing really surprises you anymore um yeah absolutely so uh colonel i know you have to get going you have another interview coming up so i don't want to take up too much of your time but it was a real honor to have you here and to have you share your depth of knowledge on this issue um really appreciate you joining me today for the MintCast live stream um for all of those watching today this interview is going to be live on our youtube channel um i think it usually posts immediately. And so we ask everybody to support this by becoming a Patreon member um, on our website and then also to continue to share this live stream and videos wherever you can to help us meet social media algorithms. Thank you guys so much for joining us today.